This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone, I'm here with uh, Avichal Garg from Electric. I got Hasib Qureshi from Dragonfly. Both these guys... Look like they might need another coffee or two because maybe they both came from East Denver. So what's going on, guys? How you guys doing? Hey, good to see you. Yeah. Doing amazing. Good, good, good. Though Hasib uh, supposedly does not drink coffee. I will, uh, I'm not sure I fully believe it with the amount of productivity and writing that he puts out, but uh, yeah. So. <sighs> yeah, I, I, I will tell you, crypto is a pretty strong stimulant. So with, with crypto, you generally don't need that much coffee. But That's all you need. Yeah, huh? Avichal knows. Avichal knows I don't drink coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. It's very right. impressive. Confirmed. <laughs> Confirmed. All right. Well, I had my coffee before this. I got my sparkling water. I got my pistachios. We're good to go for a big episode. I think I want to jump right in with narratives, actually. And when I think about just crypto and Santiago and I talk all about just like narratives, and I probably harp on it too much and focus on it too much, but I really do think that this space, at least since the last the last four years, has been driven entirely by narratives. And the reason for that is because this is at least to me, it feels like the first time we've ever had really sectors emerge in crypto. And so when I think about the last maybe two to three years, you kind of had this, uh, starting with maybe DeFi summer, you had this narrative shift from like DeFi to NFTs, then briefly to DAOs and then to L2s and then to play to earn and then to metaverse and then to like Web3 and then like back to NFTs. And the entire time, obviously, like the L1 wars were spanning the la- those last five like co-narratives, right? And so I want to get your guys' take on just like, you know, it's February 21st, 2022. What is the narrative today? And Hasib, maybe if you could start because you've written a bunch about just like the city analogy was great. I thought you had a really prescient post about like nobody's going to care about roll-ups. And I thought you've been uh, ahead of the trend on some of these narratives by maybe like six months uh, pretty frequently. And so what is the narrative right now for crypto, do you think? So that's a that's a tricky question. Um, I think right now we're we're I feel like we're facing a bit of narrative exhaustion, uh, in that most of the narratives that we've been focused on over the last six months, so things like uh, there's some you know we, we we saw this kind of resurgence of this DeFi 2.0 stuff, um, which I think with the fall of Wonderland and and kind of you know some of the drama happening there, I think a lot of that has really lost momentum. Um, some of the GameFi stuff I think has slowed down quite a bit. Uh, obviously, Axie kind of ha- showing some instability in in the uh, SLP price, but then also just broadly speaking, I'd say in you know in, even in January, I was seeing crazy velocity of gaming deals, and it feels like the gaming deals have just slowed down quite a bit, and I see less and less of them every passing week, and the the the, the metaverse, the kind of overuse of the metaverse term and kind of shoving it into everything and things that were metaversey getting just, you know pounded by investors constantly. It feels like that has started to slip. Um, the layer one wars have stabilized quite a bit, right? So we're not seeing that much movement in TVL for most of these chains other than what happened recently with Phantom. Um, and even with the rise of TVL and Phantom, um, you didn't see a concomitant rise in the overall price of, of Phantom. Um, and so 
overall, what you're seeing is that the there's less movement among layer ones. And I think a lot of what drives the narratives is volatility, right? So when you see a lot of things changing really quickly and it's like, okay, they're winners, they're losers, and it's worth betting on because you can make money. Um, when things are are just kind of slowing down and, and the, the tectonic plates aren't smashing against each other, um, that's a, also a lot of what calms these narratives down quite a bit. So it does feel like we're in a bit of a lull right now to me, but I, I don't know, uh, except maybe interoperability does feel like the one thing that's still, there's a lot of excitement about, but there aren't that many names to bet on yet because some of the big players uh, like Layer Zero and Axelar and uh, some of these other folks who are, who are building these kind of next-gen interoperability solutions are, don't have tokens yet. So there's not that much to to bet on at the moment besides you know things like uh, Synapse or Seller uh, or some, you know, some of these kind of smaller already existing interoperability plays. So how much do you, do you think? think? Well, I was, I was going to say, you know, I wonder how much of that is is um, a side effect of just the crypto cycles too. You know, we're like we're far enough into the bull, maybe at the beginning of a bear cycle here, that it's uh, you know kind of what you were talking about just at the beginning here. Jason was like, it's just exhausting being in crypto, and like when you've been running hot for two years, it's just like at the end of the cycle, everybody's just exhausted. Because it reminds me, it reminds me kind of what was what, like early twenty eighteen felt like, where every every startup that couldn't raise was just pivoting into blockchain. And so you just started like, as an investor, you just started seeing these decks come in and everything was just on the blockchain now and everything was going to be distributed. And that's, that, that's where the trope of like, oh, we're going to distribute all the things, you know, we're going to distribute Airbnb and we're going to decentralize Uber. And like, you know, that's where that was happening. And that was sort of like the last throws of the, of the bull. So it kind of makes me wonder if like, it's, it's a kind of a weird top signal. It's just like, everybody's tired. <laughs> and so you're just like, I don't, I don't have like headspace for more narratives right now. I just like can't deal with more narratives is like the signal that, um, there's just so much noise coming in that you've sort of like hit that wall. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the other side of it might be that it's, it's no longer a single narrative, right? It's just, it's, there's so many narratives running in parallel that you can't, as an individual, you can't keep up anymore. And so it's, it's kind of like going into any one of these subsectors is there's just so much activity now, which, which really was not the case three years ago. Um, that kind of, I mean, like basically I agree with the seat, but I, what I'm thinking through in my own head is like, I wonder how much of it is that I'm just tired. And it's it's a side effect of like five narratives running in parallel that is just so hard to keep up. Well, the thing that the thing that worries me about it is that you're seeing also this disconnect between privates and publics, right? So if you look on Coin Market Cap, um, you you just see like this obvious lack of momentum, right? There's not that much changing on on you know week over week basis, other than things kind of slowly sliding down, but not a lot of um, you know sort of shifting in the rankings of of protocols um, or or of tokens, but in privates, right, when you see sort of late stage uh, or, or even early stage investing, you're still seeing lots and lots of rounds getting done, things being oversubscribed, people investing a lot of capital into some of these deals. Um, and that, I think, is also a worrying sign uh, when you see this disconnect between publics and privates. Again, that was very similar to what we saw in like, you know, early, you know, like, you know, sort of March 2018, when public markets were starting to slide, but uh, you know, privates were still pretty elevated because there was, you know, so much, so much capital still chasing crypto and, and the, the, um, public markets, you know, we, we sort of hadn't seen these, um, these losses reverberate up the capital stack. And, uh, I think you know, to be clear, I, I don't think we're in a March 2018 scenario right now, but it is clear that this is part of the reason why momentum doesn't feel very strong is that, um, the, it feels like the, the the private markets haven't caught on yet. So, just to give you you know another shot on this question, right now there's a huge amount of conversation around Web three, right? There's so many people talking about future of the web, decentralizing the web, blah 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 blah. Um, but there's not that much funding actually happening. There's not that much happening on Coin Market Cap with respect to to, to Web three, 
right? Like, what are the Web3 names? Except maybe, you know, maybe like Arweave or something you could argue is kind of Web3-ish, maybe Filecoin. Um, but it's, it's uh, we, we haven't really seen this narrative, which has gotten a huge amount of momentum and attention, actually translate into, uh, you know, something actually happening in the market. And that also feels to me like a, like a worrying sign relative to where we were um, six months ago, where almost all the narratives we were talking about were also reflected in prices. Hmm. I'm trying to figure out like why we love these narratives. And to me, it feels like the crypto space almost when, when the, when it's a, when we're in the heart of a bull market, narratives are exciting, right? Narratives, just new narratives, justify the deployment of new capital. And what I'm hearing you guys say is that we're exhausted by these new narratives and the impact of that in my mind then goes new narratives, justify deployment of new capital. No new narratives justifies minimal deployment of new capital. So, and Avichal, I do hear you mentioning January of 2018 and flashes me back to this like prolonged bear market that we went into for 2018 and 2019. Now I'll, I know what, what you guys would probably say if I said like, well, are we in a bear market? I'm not going to ask that because you're like, we're long-term investors and we would believe in the <laughs> future of crypto and give some really, I don't really think boring, that's what Avicel would say, by the give way, some but, yeah, really boring response that Santiago <laughs> always gives me. And I'm like, Santiago, that's a horrible response. That's so boring. But yeah. wh I, I like when you guys think about the lack, like, and Hasib, like the public markets trickling down to privates, what does the next, are we just in for like kind of this consolidated year where like the markets just kind of float around and like maybe some of the bad stuff shakes out as we're kind of seeing over the last month, like some of these new ideas and things that we, we tested and got maybe ahead of our skis and stuff like that. Things just get kind of fizzle out like they did in 2018 and 2019 and then takes 18, 24 months and then a new fresh wave of narratives and capital comes in or... I guess my question is like, what, is, what do the next 10 months look like for you? Well, I think we do ourselves a disservice by trying to compare this to 2018, right? 2018 was a bunch of stuff got funded that was complete bullshit and the floor just fell out from under the crypto market, right? People sort of realized like, hey, uh, th this whole notion of ICOs basically has produced a whole lot of garbage and there's no there there. And the market just completely lost confidence in everything. I, do, I don't think that's where we are, right? I don't think people are going to wake up and say, oh, guess what? Ethereum is, is worthless. Bitcoin is worthless. And this is all a big sham. I don't think, I don't think there's any chance that we end up there. I think it's more likely that we realize that like, hey, there's nothing that exciting coming down the pipe in the next three months. Like we're, we're, we're kind of in more of a waiting game for the next generation of things to emerge, whether it's games, whether it's you know, kind of more use cases for NFTs, whether it's interoperability, whether it's UX, whether it's scaling. Like there are a lot of things that we're clearly bottlenecked on. Um, and it's kind of like the, um, you know, USV had this uh, post, I think it was 2018, that they wrote about this kind of the infrastructure phase and application phase and how you end up, you know, um, uh, modulating between the two over time. And I think it feels to me like we've, kind of exhausted one application phase and there aren't that many adjacent ideas that you can do that are going to be launched within the next year, right? Like most of the, there's like crypto games, which are very simple. It's like, okay, we're just going to create like some super straightforward farming thing that is, you know, analogous to Axie Infinity or like Farmville and it just has tokens on top and it's a kind of mini yield farming game or something like that. And then you have all these people who are trying to build really expansive, dramatic, uh, you know, visions of what a crypto game can be, but it's, it's, a, it's an actual like, you know, high quality game, which means it's going to take years to ship. And so we're not going to see anything for the next year. Um, and I think that it feels like a lot of things are like that, right? Like you, you look at something like ZKVM, which, uh, you know, portends to be able to scale the EVM massively in zero knowledge. 
everything along these lines is like a year, year and a half away from being production ready. And, you know, although a lot of projects are saying, like, oh, we're going to have it really, really soon. We're going to have test nets soon that are, you know, nowhere near ready for people to, you know, be able to deploy significant amounts of capital to them. So I think there the things that I'm most excited about, most of them are not coming soon. And crypto is really used to having quick hits and like, okay, this thing is, you know, it's like, okay, deploy Uniswap on this other chain. Great. Now, now you know, we've made it. Um, and I think we're not going to see many other things like that because most of the low-hanging fruit from this generation of infrastructure has already been plucked. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. So two thoughts on that. One, I, I agree. I mean, some of the stuff that's really exciting um, that I look forward around either scalability or zero knowledge, privacy, it's, it's like it's in the pipe, but it's not quite here yet. And so I think there is this little bit of a lull. And also, you know, I think there's a there's a just a human thing here, which you see outside of uh, outside of crypto and startups, which is like, you know, as, as a founder, if you if you start a company, um, for the first year, it's like the promise of the thing will really carry you. Just, you know, it's like, oh, it's going to be awesome when we launch this thing and it's going to be great. And then you launch the thing uh, and it takes 18 months to build it and get it out the door. So you launch the thing and then like nobody wants it. And you're like, oh no, like what did we do? Um, and then you grind away for another like year or two years to like figure out what is the thing that people want. And if you get lucky by like year three, you have found a thing that people want. And now you're in this flywheel of, oh, okay, people actually want this thing. What are the implications of that? And, and then like the, in some sense, like the sexy part of the thing is over and the real work begins right now. You're like, okay, this thing works. How do we get it to a billion people? And that's just like, you just have to grind it out. You just have to make it work on every platform. You have to fix all the bugs. You have to make it more performant. Like all of that stuff has to, has to come into it. You know, one of the, one of the things I was thinking about is just like what we've done with, with uh, crypto and web three, kind of the way that we finance these things is it used to be the case that, that this whole like emotional cycle that founders and companies go through was hidden from the public because the thing just goes IPO. And at that point it's, you know, it's a series D company and it's got VPs and like the whole thing kind of works. Um, and so you're seeing this machine where like money goes in the top and $5, you know, dollar goes on top, $5 comes at the bottom. And that's like the machine that most people are used to. And that's what, what a company is. And in crypto, we, we've moved it all the way back to seed level. And, and so now everybody's experiencing like all of this emotional up and down that happens inside every company. So, you know, like I, I, two, two thoughts on this one, any of the drama, like you, you mentioned, you know, Wonderland, that kind of drama happens all the time in startups. Like people do background checks. So you're not talking about like true, you know, scamsters coming in and fraudsters that have like laundered money, that kind of stuff. That was pretty bad. But, um, you know, like co-founder disputes and fallouts or like, you know, what is the right way to manage this company or like your co-founder leaving, like all that kind of stuff happens all the time in startups. It's very, very, very common. Um, we're just like, you know, most people don't experience it and they're somewhat insulated from it. The, um, the second thought related to that is, you know, I think the, the, the pricing volatility that we see is, is actually very similar to startups too. Like we, we talk about this internally, we talk about it with founders, we talk about it with our, our investors. Um, you know, you definitely go into some startups outside of crypto, right? And you'll go in one week at the seed stage and you'll think to yourself, wow, this company is going to IPO and it's going to be worth you know, $10 billion and it's the next Coinbase or the next Facebook. And then you go in, uh, you know, two weeks later and you're like, oh my God, this company's going bankrupt, right? It's just, you don't, you don't price that into the stock price and in crypto, we happen to price it in. And so a, a lot of, I think what like the side effects of are, are like a lot of what we're seeing right now, whether it's pricing or TBL shifts or like narrative exhaustion or, you know, all the stuff that we're exposed to now, I actually think is very similar to what happens in any given startup over any given week or month or quarter. It's just most of the world is not used to it. Um, so I think there are actually a lot of, it's just like startup life in a lot of ways to me. Like this totally makes sense that it would work out this way. Yeah. I can't, I mean, I can't even imagine if Blockworks had a Blockworks token from day one. It's like <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. the highs and the lows. Oh my God. It's like, yeah. it would have been, 
totally. I mean, there would have been days when that thing would have been down 90%. And then two, two days later, the yeah, thing's yeah. up 10 X. Right. And like, yeah, oh, exactly. man, I do wonder what that does. Probably better to talk to like a founder about this, but like what that does for the founder of that thing. So like, let's take, I'm just going to like throw out a random guy who I really respect, like Stani from Ave, right? Like Stani makes a bunch of money in Ave tokens right away. Maybe I shouldn't call it anyone specifically here, but too late. But like, what does that do for your mentality? Because, you know, he can't, he can't sell the thing. And I think it was Kobe who, who actually had a good post on this, which is, you know, being the second or third employee at a, at most startups in like web two world actually kind of sucks. You're taking pretty much all the risk, but you get like a minuscule amount of the equity in crypto that's almost flipped. And like in web two in like traditional tech, whatever you want to call it, the founder has like most of the equity and then they distribute it and stuff like that. The second employee doesn't in crypto that's almost flipped where like the founder has can't really sell their equity. Uh, But then the second, the second or the third or the fourth employee, like the third employee at Aave probably made an absolute killing. Nobody knows who they are. They can sell as much as they want. So it's interesting to see like what that does to actually the employee psyche and like the founder psyche as we build these things out. Yeah, I think hey, it's y'all. called the uh, the Charlie Leave when you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, brutal, brutal. Yeah, um, yeah. It's um, I'll, I'll say I'll make one more general observation. I think a lot of what Kobe was saying I think is true. Uh, you know, I think that we're gonna. I think there's a healthy middle ground between the two. You know, I think there are things that we should learn from the Web two side of it, which is like employees should have long lockups and vesting is good. And like, there's you know, you don't want to hand somebody a hundred million dollars on day three. If the protocol happens to hit, that's just not good for anybody. It's not good for the team. It's not good for the protocol. It's not good for the community. Um, and so I think we're, we're going to take some of the best practices from both and, and pull those together. And I agree. I think like fixing some of the risk reward um, for early employees is a good thing. Um, I will note, though, in most of the founders that, that I interact with that have been fortunate enough to be successful, I think the money the money doesn't really change the people. It just makes them more of who they really are. And so the people who are just, you know, just wanted to win and that's just what they're motivated by, all of a sudden they have way more money and they just get even more aggressive. They're just like, okay, now I can really do the stuff I wanted to do and I can throw this money around and have leverage. Uh, not in a financial sense, like I can, you know, I can go talk to politicians and the senators will listen to me and like I can, you know, get, I can get access to anybody and like they just, they just dial it up. And the people who are kind of in it for the, for the money in the first place and they're like, cool, I got my 5 million or my 10 million and I'm out and I'll just cash out and I'll leave. Um, so it's actually a really interesting character test in my experience. It's like if, if you have, have, and that's why I think it's so important in the earliest stages, uh, to be able to assess people, right? It's just like, if you can assess whether founders in it for the right reasons and you have sort of six cents for that, um, those people tend to stick around even after they made a ton of money. I mean, look at, look at Vitalik, right? He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to do what he's doing, right? He could just be sitting on a beach somewhere. Um, and he's clearly not motivated by the money at this point, right? So. And I don't think he ever was. It was it's, it's a mission-driven thing for him. Totally. Yeah, there's this quote. It's like, money is not good or bad. It doesn't offer freedom. It doesn't manifest evil. Money is just an amplification of your character. Hasib, can you give an overview? Um, I'd really recommend folks go read your post about just cities and blockchains or cities and that piece that you did. And we'll put it in the show notes. But can you just give an overarching, just like, what is, what is that thesis? Yes. So, okay. Uh, I get a lot of questions about uh, how to understand, is it going to be the case that Ethereum just wins everything? This is, you, you probably have gotten this question a lot of times. Is, is Ethereum just going to be the be-all, end-all of smart contract chains? and um, Or is it going to be that Solana takes everything, right? Or, or one of these other chains supersedes it and becomes the kind of the dominant chain where almost everything lives. 
And um, I came up with this analogy as a way to explain the intuition for why I don't think either of those are going to be the case. So if you think of blockchains as networks, which is the way they're commonly described, then it, you would assume that uh, they're networks, so they have network effects, and therefore probably one thing is going to be way, way larger than everything else. It's going to be completely dominant. And nothing else is going to ultimately win. And, um, and I think this is incorrect. And the reason why this is incorrect is that blockchains are physically constrained by the block size. They, they, they cannot be arbitrarily large in, in any circumstance because they need to be decentralized. So that requires you to have some physical constraint. And the best analogy for something that's physically constrained is like land. Land is physically constrained. So imagine that blockchains are like cities. And when you, when you talk about Ethereum, usually the way you talk about Ethereum is that, okay, it's, it's super old, it's super congested, it's like, um, you know, nothing ever, nothing ever seems to improve when it comes to the infrastructure. Um, nobody can really afford to transact there anymore, uh, but it's where all the money is. It's where all the high status people are. It's where all the NFTs, the most expensive NFTs, the biggest DAOs. Um, and so the analogy I, I try to give is that Ethereum is New York. New York is super expensive. A lot of people are priced out though. It's one of the most happening cities in the US. It's the financial center. It's where all the money is, where all the, the biggest uh, companies are. Um, but if you're an up and comer, you are not going to want to come to Ethereum because you're going to be priced out. The rent is crazy. Like it's, 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 uh, it's, it's tough to live there. And so there are different approaches to scaling uh, and trying to move past just what we have today in New York. Um, the, the two approaches that I outlined very briefly are um, the first is roll-ups, which I analogize to being like skyscrapers. Um, and they're like skyscrapers because they allow you to take the same land and get more out of it uh, by building upwards, building vertically on the, you know, the same layer one, which is basically how a roll-up works. Uh, but when you're on the same roll-up in the same city, quote-unquote, being the same layer one, uh, you you're still constrained by the layer one. So you don't escape the properties of the layer one. If the layer one is super congested and super expensive, you still have to deal with that when you're in roll-up land because if you want to move from roll-up to roll-up or move from a roll-up to another chain, you have to deal with the fact that you still live in New York City and it's still super expensive and it sucks and it's a pain in the ass to get around town. Um, then I talk about interoperability networks and application-specific blockchains, which I don't think are super viable as a way overall to scale um, uh, blockchains in general. And the third approach is to build another layer one, which is like building a new city. So that's like building Boston or building... Uh, you know, uh, LA or building Chicago. So um, I kind of describe a lot of the layer ones as other cities. It's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's kind of an illustration of how uh, part of the way you see cities evolve naturally is that cities become very different from each other. They take on very different properties because what you really want is not a bunch of cities that are like each other because that doesn't really serve people who have different needs very well. What you, what you see in practice is that, you know, New York is very different from LA, which is very different from Chicago, which is very different from Houston. And they have very different governance, very different cultures, very different kinds of people, very different industries that uh, uh, that congregate in those cities. Uh, and you see the same thing in layer ones, right? You see that Ethereum is very different from Solana, which is very different from Nier, which is very different from Avalanche. They have different communities, different cultures, different uh, uh, types of applications that they're going after. Um, and this model predicts a few things that I think are descriptive of, of the current world in crypto, which is one, that um, you see a power law distribution among the size of cities or layer ones, but there are a lot of layer ones that are valuable. In the same way, there are a lot of big cities, but you see a power law distribution, right? Like New York is is the biggest city by far, but then LA is also a really big city. Same thing with like Ethereum and, and Solana. Um, what you also see is that uh, roll-ups, you know, skyscrapers are uh, important technology. They're an important part of the city, but they're not complete solutions to scaling. Um, and then lastly, that um, the... Uh, building bridges, allowing people to sort of move between these cities is going to become uh, increasingly valuable as 
the overall size of crypto increases. So that's the uh, blockchain of cities model. Empire is proud to be supported by Paraswap. Paraswap is one of the leading DEX aggregators in crypto. Let's say you're booking a flight. You would never go directly to an airline, right? You'd never go directly to United or Delta. You'd obviously go to Google Flights or Expedia or Kayak or Booking.com. That's what Paraswap does for DeFi. Paraswap, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can see the platform. Paraswap makes swapping easier. It makes it faster. It makes it cheaper by aggregating more than 80 different DEXs. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, Uniswap, Sushi, Balancer, uh, Bancor into one single interface. You can use Paraswap on ETH. Polygon, as you can see here, BSC, they recently launched Avalanche a few weeks ago. Pretty exciting. If you are a trader listening to this, you are losing money by not using Paraswap. And excitingly enough, if you're a company or a platform looking to access the swapping or the yield capabilities of DEXs, you can now use Paraswap's APIs to integrate into your platform to get the full power of the DEX aggregator into your platform. So head on over to paraswap.io. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see how simple it is to use. Just plug in, let's say I wanna swap you know, 0.2 ETH, for USDT, you can see how simple it is. Just plug that in right there and it aggregates over 80 different DEXs. So head on over to Paraswap, P-A-R-A-S-W-A-P dot I-O to use the platform today. All right, let's get back to the show. Avitral, I'm sure you've thought about this before. I'm sure you've read the piece and stuff like that. Really, this is a conversation about both scaling and about network effects. And you spent a lot of time at like the OG uh, like network effects places, right? Google and Facebook. What are your thoughts on Hasib's analogy here to cities? Yeah, I think it's basically correct. It's funny. We, um, I promise, I didn't steal this from Hasib. We, we, we've been historically talking about it uh, as countries rather than cities, uh, just because the, I think the the governance and language and cultural um, splits are often even more stark when you think about like uh, Korea versus the United States. It's just like a very different culture in a lot of ways, and so it just really amplifies a lot of what Hasib's saying. But I think directly basically agree with Hasib. Um, and it's, it's interesting, I mean, to, to, to your point about web too, if you look at this um, in highly network effect businesses, something like social networks, you, you, you do see that play out, right? Like Facebook can be huge, um, but TikTok can also be huge and YouTube can also be huge and Snapchat can also be very, very large um, as can LinkedIn and as can Twitter. And then we take this sort of, uh, you know, uh, regional cultural language governance sort of um, idea you realize, oh, there are networks like Kakao Talk in Southeast Asia, um, and you know Japan is its kind of own thing, right? And and so that's kind of like Cardano. You're just like, I don't understand Cardano, but like it's there and it's like huge in Japan somehow, right? And and somehow it lives on. Um, and so uh, you know, I think I think there are like this this property of network effect businesses having this power law in the market and like that that being sort of the market structure seems to be a consistent thing, whether it's cities or countries or social networks, like that that seems to be a thing. Um, and so I, I agree. I think it would, you know, that, that's our best guess for how this plays out as well. It's just some sort of power law. And then that is where I think things like bridges and connectivity and, you know, you can extend that analogy to, to an extreme and it starts to get kind of wonky, but you know, uh, that's where like free trade starts to matter. Right. Or like, what are the, what are the, um, the, uh, you know, that's where like maybe in something like NATO matters, right. You have like a mutually assured destruction kind of pact, right. It's just like, if you, if you get attacked, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to protect you and we'll, you know, we'll send our liquidity over or we'll send our, you know, block producers and validators over and protect you. Right. Like, I think it, it gets kind of interesting. You can extend the analogy in, in some fun ways, um, but the basic market structure. What, what is the NATO for blockchains? You think that's a good question. I don't I, Do we ever talk about this? I, I had an idea years ago to have like a, like a mercenary DAO. Let's say you got this. Ah, 
No, I don't. Yeah, think you, I, you told me about this. Yeah, I, I totally think there should be places where you can like hire people for like liquidity or um, you know like uh, proof of work attacks or like validators to like switch over to networks oh, and just like have oh. basically like have hire you know like uh, armies for hire basically um, and just like throw money in and like you can you can recruit people. Um, I see. So, I, see. I mean, there, there's something there's something to be said here too. It's it's um it's not my framework. So um just crediting this is um this is something like Mark Andreessen has been playing around with. It's sort of like the idea that um, more generally, like in society on the internet, we're sort of, and I'm, I'm, this is not, uh, I'm not going to do his his thinking and injustice here. So this is like a copy of a copy of a copy kind of a thing. So take it for what it's worth. Um, but you're, you're thinking, because he just sort of put those two together for me, which is like on the internet, we're kind of moving into a city state model, which is like the idea of a nation state is really evolving. And we used to have these like gigantic nations, almost as a side effect of the way media worked, right? You had these like three channels and, and you had like a conformity because like whatever the media wanted to broadcast, like the, the degree of separation that you needed, um, you know, was, was not that big and countries used to be relatively homogenous and, and cultural norms tied us together. And, and now on the internet, like everything is so fractured. Like you can find your tribe of people anywhere on the internet. And so what we're really seeing is like the, the self-aggregation of people into these tribal units that actually resemble much more like Greek city-states or something. Um, like a pre- pre-World War One, you know, like feudal empire, city-state kind of a setup is like kind of where we are. Um, we have all these like little kingdoms um, and eventually maybe they get rolled up, but you know, like really people are sort of finding their tribes and people are finding their people and they're finding their cultures. And then like, you know, this is just the natural expression of that. It's like, okay, well, yeah, like that group of people wants to transact with each other and do business with each other. And so you would get sort of that kind of, you know, aggregation around a layer one. And so I think it's an interesting question of like, to what degree, like, do you actually end up I don't know the answer to this. Like, do you, I do think Ethereum is a big winner, but there's a question of like, how long is that tail, right? Like, do you end up with 10 layer ones? Do you end up with like a hundred? Because the ease, you know, you take something like Cosmos, it can you just like pull the SDK, can you like roll your own blockchain? It's like part of this bigger thing, but like, you don't really think of yourself as part of Cosmos, right? You're like taking the Tenderman SDK and like rolling your own thing. And there's like, you know, I don't know, are there going to be like 500 layer ones that kind of interrupt with each other pretty quickly and easily and seamlessly, but they're kind of like, this is your tribe and this is what you want to do business with. But I don't know how that plays out. Um, anyway, just, it's just something I've been thinking about more generally. It's like how fragmented is going to be and how long is that tail going to be? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, of course, like if, if I come on to, let's say, let's say you're, you know, super liberal <laughs> and I'm super libertarian or you're super into Harry Potter or I don't know, whatever, however we divide up subcultures. <laughs> yeah. Um, like if, if you're, let's, let's take Harry Potter, uh, I think as a more striking example, right? So there are big Harry Potter subcultures and fan cultures online. Um, Are you guys saying this say because you know like that a, Santiago is a huge Harry Potter fan? You know, Harry, Santiago talks about like Harry Potter every episode. He just bought, he, he's like one of like three buyers of like these like rare Harry Potter collection That's sets. Amazing. That, uh, That's awesome. Yeah. Is that why he wears the glasses he does to try to try to tap into the Harry, Harry Potter energy? Yeah. He th- yeah. <laughs> you know what? That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, well, Harry Potter's perfect then. Harry Potter's perfect then. So the, the Obviously, there there are certain affiliations that uh, have have very limited reflection on your desire to do commerce, right? So, like being really into Harry Potter, you might want to buy Harry Potter NFTs, you might play Harry Potter games, but when it comes to like Harry Potter DeFi, right? Harry Potter has no opinions about you know what what kind of pricing they want for Ether or USD or you know buying you know synthetic S and P five hundred or whatever. Like your your pattern of savings is not going to be influenced by your identity as a Harry Potter fan. Uh, you know, like Santiago will use whatever chain gives him the best price. So my, my instinct here is that, um, there, the, the subcultures that I think are easily identifiable within 
crypto that, that produce unique layer ones are things like I want everything to be private or I want, um, you know, what, I mean, what, I, I don't know how else to d- describe the other layer ones. Like, you know, Solana is like, look, I don't care that much about decentralization. I just want really high performance, right? There, there are a certain number of axes that will influence what kind of market you want to enter into, which is a lot of what determines what layer one you're going to live on. But if you're, if you're creating a layer one for like Harry Potter lovers, Maybe you have Harry Potter NFTs there. Maybe there's Harry Potter, you know, themed games there. But there's a lot of, you know, markets in general tend to be neutral, right? Like that's, that's kind of the key property markets. They don't care who you are. It's like come, you know, whether you're, you know, a, a, a strict follower of Sharia or whether you're a, you know, horrible, you know, soulless capitalist, come, come to the market and like we're all equal in the marketplace. So for that reason, I do think that although we will see the internet does encourage a lot of balkanization in that sense. Blockchains, because everyone's pseudonymous, right? No one, no one carries their identity into, I mean, unless you intentionally go build it around yourself. Um, blockchains try to be this kind of neutral substrate for just like, okay, you come here, you transact, you, you, you spend money, um, and no one has to, in principle, know anything else about you in order to transact with you. So that's my well, counterpoint to that thesis. Oh, this is fun. I'm, I, I'm just riffing on this. So uh, this is not something I thought deeply about, but it makes me think two things. So one, is that actually true anymore? Like maybe it's not true. If you just look at, um, you know, you're getting like, so, so one, one like network topology might be that you have a bunch of layer ones that are not opinionated and, and like the interfaces into those things, like the wallets or the exchanges that you use or whatever are highly opinionated. Right. So it's like, this is, it's kind of like fintech, right? It's like the U.S. dollar, and like that that system kind of is like neutral to your point. But then, like you have Amex versus Visa versus Brex versus you know like a lot of community banks. Like you have this long tail of like I'm going to carve up the user base, and then I'm going to market to them in a very particular way. And so I'm going to speak their language. I'm going to brand it to them. I'm going to give them perks in the right way. Like you know, and and maybe that's how it works. And in effect, each each token that sits on top, uh, you know, like all of the applications in some sense, you will actually have many, many, many flavors of the same commodity applications, basically like AMMs or, um, you know, lending protocols or whatever. You might get like thousands of those and then they segment by user type. So that might be one way that like the architecture works out. Um, the other is that actually because the value capture is so tied to the L1, uh, the token value capture is so tied to the L1 and it's so easy to sort of at a certain point, it's like copy paste L1 um, and spin up your own validator set. Um, that maybe those two things are much more closely tied. So maybe the example here might be something like Flow. So Flow is just like leaning in so heavily into like the sports community, for example, and sports, you know, between NBA Top Shot and NFL and all these things. And sports is such a point of identity for so many people that maybe that is like, they choose the layer one based on like some core identity features that they actually have, which which would run counter to the way things work today, which is like the the neutral substrate. And I don't, I don't know which of those two will play out. Like in, in some sense, you already kind of see that like with Bitcoin, right? It's like has a very strong ethos and these two things are tied together. It's a little different, obviously, as an L1. Um, and you kind of see that with Solana, like the, the, like the vibe of the people is just so different than it is on, on other chains. So I don't know, it's, it's kind of an interesting question to like what extent will the fragmentation happen at the app layer versus the L1 layer? Or will like, because so much of the value captures at the L1 layer, does everybody have an incentive to like produce their own L1 um, and like produce their token to target the community that they want to target, and you actually get much more fracturing, fracturing at the L1 rather than at the app layer. I tend I tend to agree with you for what it's worth that you'll get neutral neutrality for what it's worth. I tend to agree. I think that's how it probably works. Um, but I don't, I, I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm like you know 80 20 that that's how it probably works out. Well, but what you see within Ethereum is that Ethereum. I think I think Ethereum may be unique in this respect, but Ethereum already doesn't have anymore a single culture. 
right? There are so many subcultures now that live, that coexist within Ethereum, where like the NFT people are so different from the DeFi people who are so different from the like, um, the Web3 and kind of de decentralized social media people. Um, and there are even more subcultures that I'm probably not even aware of because, you know, they don't hang out on Twitter. And that, um, I think that balkanization is more likely to happen within the layer ones that basically are these in principle neutral substrates. Uh, but then I think you, you make a good point that like Solana does feel different. Solana does feel like the, the, the culture of Solana, like, there is something that unites, you know, kind of, you know, uh, Melania launching her NFT on Solana and like Radium and like, you know, kind of all, all the energy around Solana is about this, like, you know, um, it, it's like high performance, do, uh, you know, uh, get build the fastest thing, make it super cheap and everyone makes money. Uh, that, that does feel like it's a it's a it's a common thread within the Solana culture at the moment. But I think as Solana grows and if the tent pole, if the tent really increases, that you could see the same balkanization happen on Solana where like the gaming people really diverge from the NFT people who diverge from the DeFi people more than they are today. Here are my two takes, uh, which is on one, I think on one hand, there's one world where uh, there's one world where identity. I think we all want to say that identity gets tied up in L1s because identity is so tied up in just, I feel like when we go on social today, I, it's like identity, 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 and everyone has to have a really strong take on it. But if you actually look at how technology is usually played out, it's there's there's not that strong of an identity. Like when I shift from like my AWS Redshift cluster over to Snowflake, or like I decide like Azure versus Google Cloud versus AWS, like that's not an identity thing. It's who's giving me the fastest speed what's the fastest speed and like what's the cheapest thing and i'm going to go build there and i think that people like to think that their identity is tied up in l1s but as soon as the price changes their their identity shifts right everyone likes to think that they're like this big solana maxi until the price of solana goes down and like avalanche starts liquidity mining and now they're like oh i love avalanche and then like the near narrative takes off and they're like actually near is like really really interesting and so i think people overweight how much they think identity ties into this stuff. I, I don't I don't know about that actually. I'll take the other side of that because I think the I mean it's certainly true for a segment of the population, right? If you if you were late to one of these chains and then the next chain is offering you the the thing that you missed out on, um, you might hop. And but but I think I mean this is why we have sort of BTC maxis. This is why we have you know ETH maxis now. I think it's like once once enough of your net worth is tied into these things, there there's clearly an incentive for you to become an evangelist. And if you own enough of it and it falls 50%, there's a very clear uh, incentive for people to evangelize the thing. And I think, you know, taking your, your Redshift example, like it might be different if you actually were, uh, like you might feel slightly differently, let's say with AWS versus Google uh, or Azure, uh, if you were a shareholder in Amazon, but not in Microsoft, right? You might, you might be like, well, okay. But, or you might feel even more strongly if it was specifically very tied to the performance of Redshift, like the dollars that Redshift makes um, that you get a share of, like, you know, that go back to your pocket, you might feel more strongly about evangelizing Redshift. And so that's, that's sort of the line that I'm playing with is like, how much of this is the, the tribalism is like, it's, it is a, <clears throat> it's a more unique property of these networks, because like the whole, like, it's a, it's a, it's the, the other side of the coin of this whole idea of, if I can own a piece of the network, because I'm doing work in the network, um, then is the natural side effect that like I I have to become an evangelist, and if I ha if I have to become an evangelist, it's it, it kind of becomes like so many things where like the most 
you know, vitriolic, vehement, like the most aggressive people who are the most aggressive at evangelizing are actually the most successful. And, and that community, I mean, there's, I think there's a parallel to religion here, right? Which I'm sure people have played around with, but it's like, there is kind of like an R factor here, um, right? So, and like the more viral you can be, the more aggressive you can be, the better you can be at recruiting, the more likely your network is to win. And therefore you do get this kind of aggressive tribalism, which is very, which would then, to Steve's point, I think downstream, it might bleed into these things not being really neutral substrates. They might actually lead to being like actually hyper, like the L1 is actually hyper oriented around the end use cases because the like the degree to which people need to evangelize to make the thing work and make money is so aggressive, which is, it's just like a unique property of these token networks that I don't think we've seen in yeah. prior network effects. So that would say, yeah, like I guess taking the other side of my argument and joining you guys here if like in like with, with Hasib's blockchain city is like Los Angeles I think Hasib either you mentioned this in the post or on, on an episode I listened to it's like Los Angeles is like if you want to make it in Hollywood if you're an actor you go to LA right if you want to yeah. make a bunch of money you go to New York if you're like a diehard trader or something you might hit Chicago if you like want freedom and like hate taxes and like the sun you might go to Miami or something <laughs> like that yeah, yeah. so yeah <laughs> uh so in, in this case, like then the L1s would become, so it's like, if you love, if you are building a trading application, then this ties into what you're building, right? So if you're building a trading application, you're just going to go build on Solana. If you're building an NFT, you're going to go build on this L1. And then maybe there's like the public public utilities where like every single L1 out there has an AMM, a lending protocol, things like that. And that's just like base utilities. And then there's a hyper, there's a focus of each L1. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. yeah. So, so to play that forward, I kind of two thoughts. So I, I think, yeah, I, I actually do think each ecosystem will likely have its own AMMs and, and liquid staking derivatives providers and lending protocols and, and so, and, and even wallets, you know, the equivalent of uh, your, your MetaMask. And the reason I think that will be the case is, is back to this idea of like, I think the tribes have an incentive, have a financial incentive to make their L1 worth something. And the best way to make the L1 worth something is to have native applications built on that L1 that that are unique to that L1. And so that's why I kind of like the country analogy, because I think people can get their heads around nationalism. I mean, I think this is absolutely true. For example, people who are from New York are proud to be from New York. It doesn't always translate, but nationalism is like very clear. You know, if you're if you're like an ultra you know, American nationalist versus, you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, super French versus you're really, really proud of your Korean heritage. Like that, that's a very visceral thing that people can get their heads around. Um, and I think it, you will see a degree of that here too. It's just like, you know, for like, you see, you see nationalism, like government supporting their local players and, and creating like tariffs and creating blockers to other people being able to come in. Cause you want to like bootstrap your own industry. And I think there's, there's actually a very, I mean, if you go back and look at the history of like the, the Asian tigers, for example, like I think the governance mechanisms that, that those countries use is, is actually very apt here. You kind of want to create a little bit of, you like you want the, the like foreign direct investment to come in and like help bootstrap, but you kind of want it to be for your companies. And then you want to like shield your companies, your, your protocols effectively on your L1 from, you know, the, the ETH people coming in and crushing you um, because then that liquidity is just going to flow back to ETH. And so what you really need to do is create your own network effects, prop those things up and get them to be big enough, and then potentially take those things and try to go capture some, some like market share in, in the bigger global markets, namely ETH. Um, so I think if you take the country analogy, like it, it might actually play out very differently. Where like each L1 has its own killer apps on top of it, and there's a financial incentive to do that. Which goes back to this idea of like I don't, I, I just have I don't I don't I'm, I'm like probably seventy or eighty percent in agreement with the Seeb, but I think thirty percent of me is like actually I wonder if you just get like way more fracturing here because it's so easy to spin up just software. You don't have to, like the the place where I think the land analogy either in a city or, or a, a country breaks down is like you know, digital space is just infinitely more scalable and it's infinitely easier for me to just like pick up and go create a new blockchain, right? It, versus like going from New York and like a covered wagon to try to get to California. 
it's just like that much harder, right? Or to start a new That's city. That's true. Although um, it, it, at the same time, like most of the land in the U.S. is empty, right? Like there, there. If you actually do want to go start a new city, like you can. And I mean, it's obviously harder now than it was a hundred years ago. But yeah. in principle, there's a lot of empty space ready for it. But the reality is that, uh, you know, if you want to go start a new L1 today. Like I, you know, when I get pitches on L1s, it's very, very rare anymore that I invest because yeah, I'm so, like, okay, what, what, what new kind of L1 can you build that doesn't already, you know, that someone isn't much further along with you in building the kind of thing that you already want to build. Now, at the same time, part of the reason why, um, you know, to, to so Jason started this thread with a, with a point of like, look, when I'm looking at Redshift versus Snowflake, it's a pretty dry kind of mechanical decision of you know what better suits my needs. And, uh, you know, you sort of, uh, Avital, you, you kind of contrasted that against the sort of religious and cultural aspects of crypto. And I think, um, to Jason's point, what we should expect is that over time, you know, if you look back in 2017, 2018, right, crypto was basically 95% religion, where it's like, okay, Bitcoin versus Dash versus Litecoin versus IOTA. Um, no one's actually using any of this stuff for anything, right? We are just buying it and kind of slapping it around and, and, and yelling at each other on Twitter. And now you, you do see things like Audius that are like, Hey, I was on XDAI, but now I'm moving to Solana because I need to, because I have like actual industrial needs that are only met by this particular blockchain. That, that the decisions that we're starting to see being made, like, you know, Radium is, um, you know, starting to migrate onto Nier. You have all these people, you know, some folks are moving from Solana to Avalanche or from Ethereum to Solana. And people are starting to make more of these industrious type decisions among layer ones, mostly just like the top five, right? You're not seeing that much beyond, uh, below that. Um, uh, but, you know, I heard the other day about a big application that's considering moving to their own Cosmos SDK chain from Ethereum. Um, and so I think th that to me portends that we are starting to move into this phase where it's less about religion at the margin. It's still a lot of it is people yelling at each other on Twitter, but um, it's becoming less about religion and evangelism and more about the kind of, okay, do I use Azure or do I use AWS? And it depends on what you can actually offer me with respect to my needs in the application that I'm building. And that's, it's, a, it's a good sign that that's happening, but it's still a minority of what is determining the movement of prices and the actual activity of individuals on these chains. Yeah, well, two, two thoughts on that, right? I think um, one on the you know the fundamental utility piece. I, I would like that to be true. At the same time, you know, part of the utility, like when an application is deciding where to go, which L one or which which chain to be a part of, part of it is part of the utility is how many users can you bring me. Um, and, and so, if if there is a community that can that is you know has better evangelism and can bring you more users you might choose to go there even like so that that's sort of the balance right it's like if it's not the ideal technical fit but it has way more users would you choose to go there and i think there are a lot of applications that might just choose to go to the place that has more users even if it's not 100 technically the best um, thing that you might want to do um the second thought which is actually on your first point is the i, I think the number of chains here is somewhat a function of the market size. So I agree with you, like we're not doing a bunch of new L1 investments right now, just cause like, how are you gonna compete and how are you gonna cut through the noise? But if we were at 2 billion users, we might have a very different conversation, right? We might be in a, in a place, and you saw this with social networks, right? There was this period from like 05 to 08, where you had MySpace and Facebook and High Five and Bebo, and then you got this massive consolidation period from like, I don't know, 08 to 11 or 12. And everything that wasn't hitting scale was just sort of dying off. Like Friendster died off, My, MySpace basically died off. But then on the other side of that, you got Instagram and WhatsApp and Telegram and Discord. And you just got this like massive refragmentation because the market size got large enough. So we, I think we might be, I, I agree with you, like we're not doing a lot of those right now. But I guess the question for me is, 
10 years from now, seven to 10 years from now, after we've gone through a period of consolidation and we have like the five to seven big winners, which we can probably all roughly agree on right now. Um, do we actually enter a period where it goes from like seven to 70 or 70 to 700? And like, I don't, I don't know the answer, like how many there will be, but I can actually see a world 10 years from now where we actually have, you know, one to two order magnitude more L1s than we would have guessed because, because like the market size gets large enough that it could actually sustain it. I mean, in some sense, like if you think about, let's say, I don't know how many users are, are in, Use, actually using these different L1s right now, let's say it's on the order of 100 million, right? Um, total. Um, you know, if you take out people just sitting and holding Bitcoin, I don't know. That's probably that even sounds, an that overestimate. That's way too high. That sounds way yeah, too high. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's say it's order order of magnitude like 10 million, right? Um, sure. We're talking about 100x market growth, right? Like you, you can get to a billion-ish people. And so in that world, could you actually have 100x the chains? Because the chain that's coming in when you have a billion people only needs to be as big as the chains are today to essentially sustain itself, to have its like little city state community. Um, and so that, that's where I'm like a little, I, I haven't, I don't have a good way to think through it. Like, I don't, I don't know what the answer is going to be, but it's something I think about a lot is actually like, is the universe of chains actually going to be way, way, way more fragmented than, than we're expecting here because it's going to be so easy to spin these things up, which might, you know, we were talking about this before in a separate conversation, but you know, this, this might lend yourself, lend it itself more to like than a Cosmos style, you know, hub model where you like, these things are sort of, loosely coupled in some way and you know you don't necessarily think of yourself as like uh you know it, you're not like a cosmos bull necessarily you sort of like want your app specific thing or you want like the community that you're a part of it just happens to be built on a substrate that can communicate with each which with across the chains maybe that's like the right net end topology naturally as an investor like if you expect there to be a parallel distribution of these things then you know if if there is in fact one kind of uh l1 factory that produces them all and it actually captures meaningful value from them. So if it is Cosmos or the Cosmos Hub, um, then that's a, it's a great way to bet on the sort of long tail of country, so to speak, right? But if you look, you know, at the real world, you know, it's something like what half of GDP is just the U.S. and China, and then you take Western Europe and that's like you know seventy percent of global GDP, um, and then the rest of it is just you know these tiny little fractured countries that aren't individually that big. Uh, and I suspect that. Given that we, it's likely we may see something similar, I think it's possible to your point that thirty percent of the total market cap of crypto is these long tail L ones. But if they are all produced by the same factory, then you can get exposure to it by investing into Atom. But otherwise, it's going to be too difficult as an investor to kind of be okay. Well, here's the Harry Potter universe L one, and here's the you know the <laughs> whatever Dan Brown universe L one, and so on and so forth. It becomes too it becomes too fractured to be able to bet on effectively as an investor. All right. So, I mean, both of you guys are agreeing that there's one thing that we're all agreeing on, which is that this is going to be a multi-chain future and that like ETH isn't just going to win everything or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. We're going to live in a multi-chain future. And so when you live in a multi-chain future, you need things to connect the chains, which gets us to bridges. Right. And so I think that uh, in my mind, like tying this all back to narratives, it felt like the narrative, like whenever everyone's making their end of year predictions and stuff like four months ago or three months ago, everyone's like bridges, bridges, like, and if you said bridges in your Twitter post, you, you know, you looked really smart and you look like a big brain. And now, you know, when it comes to bridging, it seems like people maybe got a little bit ahead of that. And it seems like a lot of the big brain folks are like, uh, maybe bridges are harder than we actually thought. Right. And a lot of the builders, the founders are like, holy shit, this stuff is hard. And a lot of the investors are like, do they all get tokens and like what what is like investing in bridges look like and stuff like that? So what does what what are your thoughts on bridges right now? Let's start there. I'm I'm anti. 
Are you pro? Anti. Anti bridges? Hasib loves yeah. bridges. Wow. That's fight. All, all right. Hot take. Wait, why, yeah. why, okay. well, why are you anti bridges? Why are you anti bridges? Lay it on. Well, part of it, I just promised that I would disagree with everything you said. It's a, it's a more interesting podcast. Avishal, you're getting you invited were... every single month onto the show. This is amazing. Great. Great. I, I figured I figured you'd be pro, so I'm going anti. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. Do you want to first? Let's start with your anti position. If you can elaborate on your anti ness, okay. and then I'll dismantle it. Okay, okay. Uh, this is bold, bold assertion. Okay, so I'll tell you, I'll, kind of extending this analogy we were talking about, but I think if you believe that if you believe that the world is ninety nine percent not here yet, right? Like, uh, you know, it's nine hundred ninety million of the people who are going to use this stuff are not even here yet, and um, you want to build real network effects you kind of don't want to interrupt. Like you kind of want to like figure out how to get all of the new users in and like hit the ground running with like your own liquidity pools and, and like bootstrap it in other ways. And so like what are bridges really giving you? Um, they're bringing liquidity in. Okay, great. Um, they might be bringing in some pro like users who, who really want to use your chain. But like how many of those people are sticky, right? It's, it's really a CAC question, a, a cost of customer acquisition question. And like, are those really the most sticky, highest LTV users that you want to bring in that you're like allowing to bridge over? Or are you better off like trying to acquire all the users? So by analogy, this would be like Facebook is at zero, MySpace is at 80 million users. Do you really want to try to go get all the MySpace users and like encourage them to come over and port their networks over? Maybe. Or do you actually want to like recreate your own graph? Uh, do you want to like go get all the college kids, which are actually like the leading indicator of who's going to use this stuff, make your product super easy to use, lock them all in and get the flywheel going. And so I think there's an argument actually, and I, you might argue somebody like Solana did this, right? They, they picked Rust, not EVM compatible. They like made a totally different trade -off, set of trade-offs with decentralization. Um, uh, and th there's sort of an academic argument there about what decentralization means, but set that aside for a second. They went to a totally different community of people. Like it just feels like the high frequency trader kind of crowd, not like, you know, um, you know, kumbaya, like, you know, let's make the world a better place kind of people. It's just like a different vibe, right? But a lot of it was not, um, was not about bridges, right? It was about they're doing their own thing very purposefully. Like let's tap into Rust, which has its own great community and like draft on that. So. I mean, I think there's even a, potentially you could argue an existence proof for like anti-bridge. And then, you know, we saw what happened with wormhole and like the consequences of that. Right. And so you, you could actually argue like the, the bridge was sort of like, you know, has created more pain for them than it's created value. Even anyway, that's my that's my anti-argument. OK, OK. So now I dismantle that argument. So first of all, Solana, 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 to be clear, the first bridge for Solana was FTX. FTX operated, if you remember, almost all of the assets on Solana and on Serum were basically bridged assets custodied by FTX, the exchange. And eventually they were like, oh, wormhole, this is decentralized. It's like not FTX. So let's yeah, like yeah. get everyone to start using wormhole. Um, yeah. But from the beginning, same thing with Binance Smart Chain, which is, yeah, which yeah. we haven't talked about at all, but is to be clear, the second most used chain in existence. Um, yeah. And Solana, um, you know, both Binance Smart Chain and Solana, initially the only real way to actually get users onto these platforms was through onboarding through exchange backed bridges. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, clearly, but that's, like, that's a that's a stretch though to call that a bridge. That's like calling. I mean, like you could call an exchange. So how is that not a bridge? What well. what is that then? Yeah, it's well, it's that I think it's a great example. It's it's a it's a it's a centralized company that is like custodying a bunch of assets and allowing you to like move it in. So it's like it is it's a very okay. So your argument is against decentralized bridges, but yeah, centralized yeah, bridges yeah. are fine. Uh, well, it's not, I wouldn't even call it a bridge necessarily. It's just like they found a way, they, they found an entity to acquire users, right? And it just so happened that it's an exchange that like can move, like the, the right place to go acquire some new users happens to be a place that already has a bunch of crypto users. So that's like a, like a very reasonable strategy. But like, 
I don't know. That's to me. That's a stretch to call. Like you, 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 it's sort of like you could call those a layer two. It's like okay, well, like Coinbase. Is Wait, like what? <laughs> I mean, so first, first of all, these were called bridges, right? This is not a. I'm not like abstracting over the idea of bridges. And second, from the experience of a user, right? Like if you have a bunch of ETH and you want to get yeah. it onto Solana, yeah, you, you have to go find a bridge. And at the time, your options were send it to Wormhole, which is tiny, or send yep. it to FTX and then have FTX bridge it for you. And the FTX bridge had more liquidity than totally. Wormhole did in the early days. So like from the experience of a user, they don't give a shit whether it's decentralized or not. They're just like, oh, I need to bridge assets into no, no, Solana. It's, it's not the centralized or decentralized. It's like you can have more centralized bridges too. It's like, is that, it's like, I think a stretching of the word to call that. Like, do you call, do you consider exchanges layer twos? No, I mean, I don't think exchanges call themselves okay. layer twos either. Yeah, but exchange. Well, so why is an exchange a bridge but not a layer two? I mean, what about a an exchange is like a layer two? I mean, exchanges don't run smart contracts. They don't like they're not trustless. They, you know, like the things that make a layer two a layer two are not. Don't describe uh, exchanges. Well, now, well, that's just now it's just like a semantic argument, right? It's just like you know, it's like the <laughs> place where most a people. Semantic are, argument. No, no, no. It's like literally, like you know, like what what is a layer two It's like the place that's like super low fee to like go do the transaction that you want to go do without having to and then you like settle it back out the chain periodically right i i think that's one thing that a layer two might do but like in general okay well let's take the layer two thing aside um so okay whatever whether or not you want to call ftx or binance bridges they call themselves bridges so i'm going to call them a bridge um now the the so you make this point that like okay well uh if you if you imagine that you're Facebook and you're like oh that's like bridge to to MySpace and that's how we're mm-hmm. going to acquire users that would be a very you know flawed way to think about the growth of Facebook obviously Facebook grew by onboarding net new customers who never used MySpace in the first place and yeah. I think it's an interesting argument but the way I would analogize that is that it depends on one what you think of as the other network and two what you think of as top of funnel right so top of funnel for Facebook the internet was everybody um, but of course everybody who ends up coming into Facebook first has to get on the internet. And, they, and, and to get on the internet, you have to get on email, right? Like almost everybody who got on the internet got an email address. So one of the things that every single social network does is say, hey, send an import your email graph and we will use your email graph to like send messages to your friends and figure out who you should connect with. Every single social network did this, right? Mm-hmm. That was the top of funnel. That was the correct, you know, the equivalent of Ethereum of the, the person you want to be bridging from, and you know maybe it's not going to be Ethereum five years from now because Ethereum might be too constrained, but whatever is that top of funnel that everybody who ends up coming into blockchain starts at, the equivalent of that for social networks was email. And it you didn't literally start from zero for no, from no peer existing graph because there was always a step that someone started from to get onto the internet. And the same way in public blockchains, it's very unlikely that the first thing someone's going to do when they come onto public blockchains is show up on near. You know, maybe it's, it's possible that that's the way that it happens, but clearly today, the vast majority of people who are coming to public blockchain start from the biggest one because it's the one that they well, have heard I, of, I they've think, seen on TV, it's where all the NFTs are, et cetera, et cetera. They, they so probably start with Coinbase. They, they probably start with Coinbase. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. They start with Coinbase right. and then if they, if they go further, then they go into, you know, Web3 and MetaMask and they say, oh, the fees are crazy. And then they hear this thing about Nier or Solana and they, and they go jump over there. Um, it's, it's certainly possible that you see the top of funnel is like, oh, Melania dropped this NFT and I love Melania. So I'm going to go straight to Solana and like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to skip go and I'm not going to collect 200 bucks. That is, 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 it's certainly possible that we end up at that world, but the vast majority of users are not showing up that way. The vast majority of users are not showing up because of an affiliation with a particular project. They're rather showing up because crypto is cool and they want to buy NFTs generally. 
I, okay, so so two things to unpack there. So one, I think the the bridging, if you're talking about only bridging of assets, like I think is much different. Like the analogy there would be like, what you really want to do is bring like all of your activity over. So you've done a bunch of stuff on ETH and you want to reward people for like being, you know, active DeFi users or having a big NFT collection. And like, that's actually not what's happening. Like what we're really doing is like moving ETH tokens over. And so you're trying to like get liquidity flywheels going, which I think is like a much lower value thing. I, I, I don't like think that's bridging. fair. I don't think it's fair. Like to, to move a person over, you need to move money over to pay fees, right? Like you, you, right. if you show up on near and you have no money, you can't do anything. Yeah, but I, I uh, yes, but I think the thing is not that like, um, like I think the analogy breaks because, well, for two reasons. One, like it, it's in the weeds. So, you know, it's like you didn't actually like just bring your email graph over and then like you had a graph on Facebook. Like the idea was you're acquiring a customer and you needed a re-engagement channel. So you needed like an email address um, uh, or a mobile phone number. Um, and then you imported their graph to suggest things to them, right? So what you did, what you were doing was saying like, I think these people might be people that you want to connect with and share photos with and hear from. And so that's why I think the analogy is like, it, it's like you have to extend it a little bit. It wasn't just like, oh, now you have the graph here. It's like you were using it as, as, a, as an engagement tool. It wasn't so much about, it wasn't a customer acquisition tool. It was actually like an engagement tool. And, and the customer acquisition tool, um, it, it was kind of email, but it was actually all net new users. Like I think they're, they're separate products and then you were bootstrapping off an existing graph, but like it was really about re-engagement and, and depth of engagement more than it was acquisition. Um, but, but I think it's similar here, right? So it's like, I think the, like the point of entry actually is not Ethereum. I think the point of entry is, is potentially Coinbase or FTX or Binance, right? Do, do you agree with that? So if, if that's true, then like, I think like that, that, that's what like, that's why I think you don't necessarily need to like my definition of bridge being like, do you need to bridge assets over from Ethereum is not necessarily the case. Now, if you, if you start to expand the definition, you say, okay, like Coinbase or FTX, you could consider some sort of bridge. Then I, I think that that's potentially very interesting, right? Because that opens up the universe of what are the places where there are a ton of users sitting and a lot of net new users are likely to get onboarded through that channel. And then how do you acquire users out of that channel? I think is a, is a super interesting question. If you go, if you call that a bridge, great. Um, but that's where things like FTX, crypto.com, potentially that's where like Facebook would have been super interesting. That's where OpenSea is really interesting. It's like they're sitting on tons and tons of users. And then how do you acquire those users? I think is a very interesting question. So, so Vichal, I want to, so tying it back to like almost the definition of a bridge, right? Like when I was thinking about bridges in this question, it's like, um, it's like any bridge or like SeaBridge or, or Wormhole or RenBridge, right? These like decentralized bridges. I actually was not thinking of like FTX and Coinbase and things like that. And when it comes to cross-chain bridges, right, they're, they're in my, of my understanding, there are two main challenges. One is ensuring that the, that the synthetic assets on one chain are not arbitrarily inflated without like proper backing on the original, on the originating chain. And then the, uh, and then the second challenge is that the transporting process is actually secure. It seems like going back to, again, like the original question of earlier three months ago, everyone's like bridges, bridges, bridges of the future, big year coming up for bridges. And then people realize that those two challenges I just mentioned are actually a lot harder than people might've realized. Avichal, do you think that those challenges get overcome and we figure those out? Or you're like, look, that's just too hard. And it's the bridges are going to be the FTXs of the world. Um, I, well, kind of both. Like, I, I think that they will get figured out. I think these are like solvable. I think as, as like security guarantees get better and better on, on either side of these things as the networks get bigger and more robust. And so I think that, that all kind of takes care of itself. 
Um, but I still think it's it's going back to maybe like the country analogy. Like I think when you're bootstrapping a new country, like you look at a Singapore or a Taiwan or something like that, like what you actually want to do is is actually not let the foreign people in. You actually want to like shelter your own industry a little bit and you want to like nurture it. Um, and so what you want is like a little bit of capital coming in, but you want like your your local industry to, to sort of get large enough to be able to compete globally and then build bridges so that people can go out. Um, so I'm actually so sort of controls. like, I think it's a strategic. Yeah, you want you want like a degree of capital control and you want a degree of like subsidization. And which is where like these foundations come in to like invest in like the local AMMs and stuff. And, and literally, I mean, we've seen this play out, right? It's literally like a small country will go like steal IP from a big country. And then like, that's how they bootstrap their semiconductor industry or something. Right. Um, or like their arms. Right. And so like, literally that's what's happening. It's like, people are going and taking Uniswap and they're like, cool, let me copy paste that over. Um, and that's how I'll like bootstrap the thing. So I, I actually think, yeah, I'm, I, I, uh, not, I'm, I'm sort of convincing myself. Maybe just, I started just like to, <laughs> to, to be, to be, anti, I started just to be anti Haseeb, uh, and, like, have a fun discussion. But I'm, I think I'm kind of convincing myself that actually, like, people shouldn't spend that much time building these, like, more decentralized bridges and trying to, like, pull liquidity across. Though I, I do agree with Aseeb that um, I think building hooks into, like, where are the users, where are the, like, net new users going to get onboarded, which I don't think is these, these decentralized bridges, and, like, figuring out how to get hooks into that and then sucking those users over, I think is smart. But, but I think it will extend beyond bridges. And so this is where I think, like, Solana's approach of tapping into Rust or Nier's approach of tapping into Rust is, like, is really smart because there's a whole community of developers over here they don't know anything about crypto right now. And actually, if you can suck those people over, that's net new users that you're bringing in. He's very bearish bridges. <laughs> now, let me give the bull case for bridges. I've been arguing anti Avicii. Let me give the, bear, the bull case for bridges. Okay. Let me give the bull case for bridges. So one is that clearly right now, okay, regardless of what's going to happen five years from now, clearly right now, top of funnel is Ethereum, Binance, Smart Chain, Solana, right? Like that's where almost everyone that new is showing up. Um, and so if you're not connected to that graph of chains, um, like the reality is that very few people start their crypto experience on like Terra or something, you know, or like on, you know, chain number seven. Uh, it just doesn't happen. So, uh, overwhelmingly, you know, if you're, um, if you're, if you're starting trying to build sort of a new social network, you want to kind of hook into the pre-existing one. Like Airbnb got to start by saying like, Hey, you can also, you know, import your Craigslist offerings into Airbnb and kind of bootstrap yourself off of a pre-existing, um, uh, sort of, you know, community. And that's why you think you know, that's why it's obvious that bridges are so essential, right? Like you saw Avalanche take off in large part coordinated with their launching of a new bridge, which was much better and much better UX than the previous versions of the bridges. And you saw in the early days, you know, look at look at Terra's early bridge, which was awful. Um, and when they improved their bridge and they started getting onto Wormhole, suddenly the TVL started started going up because these things matter. They, they are they are now TVL is not everything to Avicii's point. TVL is not users, but the other thing about blockchains, remember, is that blockchains are not like social networks. Social networks, you can broadly count the value of a social network by the number of users. Um, but blockchains are more like finance. They're more like economies. And economies, you know, it doesn't matter. Like India has way more people than the U.S., but it doesn't matter because the U.S. has way more GDP because it's a much richer country. And so the way that you if I tell you that this bank has 30 customers, you have no idea if that bank is the Fed or if it's like some community bank in Iowa. So the, the scale of your customer matters, which is why, uh, although bridges primarily serve people who have a lot of money, and yes, it's moving over a lot of capital, the amount of capital that lives in a chain really does matter um, relative to the number of users. Uh, because, you know, social networks profit a tiny amount of each individual user. Blockchains, in principle, can profit a gigantic amount on a small number of users. Um, and so that's another reason why I think bridges really do matter. Um, and third thing is that there is a, 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 I think, an increasingly important function 
of a cross-chain world that cannot be served by just going onto an exchange and moving money onto a platform, which is cross-chain messaging, right? So uh, right now we have a few applications that are cross-chain, like things like Anchor, which, you know, kind of get yield cross-chain. There are things like Aave and Curve, which are deployed to multiple chains. And they, right now they kind of, there's a very janky solution right now. Lido is another example. There are very janky solutions right now to try to make what you can analogize if you take this sort of, you know, national, all these states or nations, uh, they're the equivalent of like multinational corporations. And when you have a multinational corporation come into your economy, um, the, the obvious thing about it is that it's, it's really well built, right? It's kind of the same way multinationals are in the regular world is that multinationals are extremely efficient. They're very well managed. They're, 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 they're very good relative to, you know, kind of the local off color, you know, stable swap AMM that's going to show up on your chain. Um, and so, Part of what enables more and more complex forms of multinational uh, applications is cross-chain message passing. And cross-chain message passing is never going to be enabled by either exchanges or even bidirectional bridges, which are most of the very simple, not decentralized bridges that we're seeing from you know, Avalanche to Ethereum, right? When the Avalanche to Ethereum bridge exists, the only thing they care about is bringing in users and bringing in um, TVL. They don't really care about cross-chain message passing, which is what enables more complex forms of, uh, of kind of, you know, corporate activity because it's not in Avalanche's interest actually to encourage multinational corporations. Uh, but I think you're going to see more and more of this once decentralized bridges come into the fray and allow, you know, being able to call a contract on another chain or being able to compose things across multiple chains uh, asynchronously. That is going to become big once we have those primitives. Um, and it's something that is never going to exist from purely being able to move capital, which you can do to Evigil's point using just exchanges. Yeah, I, I really agree on the messaging point. On the on the dollars dollar weighted instead of user weighted point, I think that's absolutely true. It just goes back to this question of like, are bridges the best way to accomplish that? And there are a way. They are certainly a way to accomplish that. But like, you know, play it forward, and you're like, well, you know, I mean, you're actually seeing this happen right now with with some L1s. Like, they're going out and doing um, these sort of like treasury rounds because you know they they just need assets. And what they're what they're doing is offering twenty five million dollar slugs to people. Um, who have a lot of capital and because there's this like entirely new tranche of capital that wants to come in in the world and they want exposure to, to crypto and blockchains and they just don't know how to get it so it's a great way for them to get that exposure um and so i think you know it just it, it, to me i guess the question is like if the goal is to get a lot of tvl or to get a lot of dollars flowing into your system are bridges necessarily the best way to do that or are there other ways to do that that might actually increase the net new users and net new dollars coming into the system and it might actually even be easier and by not doing that you haven't exposed yourself to liquidity going back in the other direction um, it's sort of a one-way door if you can get that built. Um, and that's, I think, the, like, the thought exercise I'd be going through if I were running one of these old ones. Yeah. Last question here. Avichal, again, you spent a bunch of time in like Web2, Facebook, Google, and just I'm thinking about network effects. We've talked for an hour about how to bring developers and applications and users on in crypto with these L1s. Sometimes there are very different network effects and almost like reverse network effects where like the more people that come onto your thing, like the slower it gets and the more expensive it gets. So how do you think about uh, just the network effects in like web three or crypto or, or whatever you want to call it versus these traditional web two network effects? I mean, we covered a lot of it here. I think you will get, I, I, it's a function of like where we are in the market and kind of like how big the market sizes are. I think it's a function of, um, uh, you know, how nationalistic the culture is. And I think certain cultures are going to be, you know, have much, much stronger network effects because they're sort of anti everything else, um, which actually I think is is going to, the, the sort of like natural selection of this, the Darwin, Darwinian evolution of these things, I think is going to naturally select for people who are, have a higher R factor, like greater evangelism, and also being more anti other things, I think will naturally create network effects. 
Um, I think there are like really subtle and interesting network effects on the developer side. Like I think I, I've, I've been kind of surprised uh, by the degree to which EVM sort of has a network effect around it. And that's like become a thing. Um, and so like, you know, it's, it's imperfect in all sorts of ways as anybody will tell you, but it's like kind of works. And it's, it's like, it's like the JavaScript of this, of this ecosystem. It's just like, nobody loves it, but it's like kind of here now. And it's just kind of like embedded and there's a bunch of tooling around it now. And everybody knows how to write code around it. And like other people are picking it up. And so we're kind of, we are where we are with it. Um, and so there are like these subtle tooling and developer network effects that I think we're starting to see that, that are actually real things. Um, but I suspect many of those will be, there's almost like, a, it's probably a good blog post in here. Maybe I'll ping you about it later to see if it's like, we should talk through it. But like, it feels like there's a spectrum of network effect and like the degree to which there's like a strongness of network effect and certain kinds of network effects are very strong network effects, like the evangelism and like the being anti everything. And then there's like light network effects and, and like you can model that and you could essentially say like, if you think it's mostly strong network effects, you're going to get a very stark, like stark power law and you're going to get five big winners. And if you think the network effects are like much lighter weight network effects, then it's not going to compound in, in quite the same way because the ability to like move between these things is going to be such that the network effects are not enough to actually contain you. Um, and so you'll get a much, much longer tail and a much smaller head in terms of like the big winner will be a big winner, but you'll just have such a long tail that like the market structure will be really different. Um, so anyway, that's a rambling answer, which is like, I think there are like very clear network effects at the user level, at the dollar level, and the developer level network effects, I think are like the open and interesting question to me is like, how strong are those network effects? And I, I don't, I don't have a great answer for that yet. Um, but they've, been, they've actually been stronger than I would have expected. And, and EVM is like one example of that. All right. It was indeed the last question. Guys, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I just want to call out to the audience. These guys are, you know, two of the best investors in the industry. If you guys are raising early stage, I think kind of any stage, uh, you should definitely reach out to their team. So, Hasib, thanks, man. Thank you. Avichal, thank you as well. Good to see you. Yeah, take care, guys. Take care. Thanks, man. Thanks for doing this. Yep.